As we come now before the very word of God, uh, please turn in your Bibles if you'd like to read with me to the book of Hosea in chapter 1. We'll be here again in Hosea. And before we read, would you please pray with me? Lord, we know that your word is active and alive. That this now before us is sharper than any double-edged sword. So Lord, now, by your word, would you pierce to the very core of our hearts? Would you divide that which is in us and expose us to your light that we would see you and come to love you more? Guide us now by your spirit, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. We'll begin here in Hosea chapter 1. I want to pick up uh, where we, at the end of where we ended last week, now in verse 10, and we'll carry on through to a good part of chapter 2, but this is Hosea beginning in chapter 1, verse 10. Yet the number of the children of Israel shall be like the sand of the sea, which cannot be measured or numbered. And in the place where it was said to them, you are not my people, it shall be said to them, children of the living God. And the children of Judah and the children of Israel shall be gathered together, and they shall appoint for themselves one head and they shall go up from the land, for great shall be the day of Jezreel. Say to your brothers, you are my people, and to your sisters, you have received mercy. Plead with your mother, plead, for she is not my wife, and I am not her husband, that she put away her whoring from her face, and her adultery from between her breasts, lest I strip her naked and make her as in the day she was born, and make her like a wilderness, and make her like a parched land, and kill her with thirst. Upon her children also I will have no mercy, because they are children of whoredom. For their mother has played the whore. She who conceived them has acted shamefully, For she said, I will go after my lovers who give me my bread and my water, my wool and my flax, my oil and my drink. Therefore, I will hedge up up her way with thorns. I will build a wall against her so that she cannot find her paths. She shall pursue her lovers but not overtake them. She shall seek them but not find them. And then she will say, I will go and return to my first husband for it was better for me then than now. And she did not know that it was I who gave her the grain, the wine, and the oil, and who lavished on her silver and gold which they used for Baal. Therefore I will take back my grain in its time, and my wine in its season, and I will take away my wool and my flax which were to cover her nakedness. Now I will uncover her lewdness in the sight of her lovers, and no one shall rescue her out of my hand. 
and I will put an end to all her mirth, her feasts, her new moons and her Sabbaths and all her appointed feasts, and I will lay waste her vines and her fig trees, of which she said, these are my wages, which my lovers have given me, and I will make them a forest. And the beasts of the field shall devour them, and I will punish her for the feast days of the Baals, when she burned offerings to them, and adorned herself with her rings and jewelry, and went after her lovers and forgot me, declares the Lord. This is the word of God. Now, what we've read here is the first time in the book of Hosea where we get to hear the word of the Lord that the prophet Hosea says to the people of Israel. Because before this, in the verses that we looked at last week, Hosea doesn't actually say anything. But instead, in in that time, Hosea is a visual word. That is, we've called him and his family a living parable. And and if these things sound upsetting to you, in some ways they are, I'd encourage you to go back and listen to last week's sermon, at least go back and read uh, the text prior to this so we have a sense of what's going on here, at least for us now. Let me give a, a brief summary. The Lord has called this prophet Hosea to marry a woman that he calls a wife of whoredom. Those are the Lord's words, not mine. You can figure out what they mean. At any rate, he marries, Hosea marries this woman, Gomer, and she has three kids who are given ominous names, which essentially amount to uh, their meanings are war, no mercy, and not my people. So Gomer and Hosea and these kids are are now a living parable to show the relationship between the Lord and Israel, that the the land of Israel has now committed whoredom and broken the covenant with their God, and they now bear the fruit of their destruction. It is a grim and unsettling picture. But then, where we picked up here today, at the very tail end of chapter 1 and verse 10, there's a tiny little word of hope, which is the word, yet. After all of these grim words from the Lord, we get the word, yet. Here's the tail end of of verse 9. You are not my people, and I am not your God, yet. And then the Lord gives a little glimmer of redemption. You know, there's a a tiny spot of light, a ray peeking through the end of the tunnel. and, and, And the Lord says here at the end of that chapter that instead of being scattered in war, then they'll be gathered together under one head. 
Instead of having no mercy, they, he says, you will have received mercy. Instead of being not my people, you are my people. You'll be called again the children of God. Your offspring, in fact, will be vast as the sand of the sea, which is a callback to God's way earlier promises to Abraham, his covenant of Genesis that still remains true. So there's a, there's a sigh of relief. Whew. <laughs> you know? I thought for a second that all was lost. That things were going to get real bad. Well, hold on. Let's not jump for joy just yet. All is not lost. That's true. It's not lost. There is hope and yet things will get real bad. At least hard. We see here that the Lord will restore this tragic family portrait that is the people of Israel. That not my people will be my people again. He will move them from whoredom to wholeness. But the big question then is how? How is the Lord going to go about restoring this unfaithful people? As the saying goes, we can do this the easy way, or we can do this the hard way. And wouldn't it be nice if this went the easy way, but... uh, Israel is not quite that easy, so the Lord, in his goodness and wisdom, is now about to take them down a very hard path. The answer to the question of how will the Lord restore them, the answer to that question, at least initially, is that the Lord takes her to court. He takes her to court. Chapter 2 here is a metaphorical divorce trial. And God is about to bring an indictment against Israel to show her guilt. Doesn't sound like courts that we're familiar with, but look at how it begins here. This is chapter 2, verse 2. It starts with these words. Plead with your mother. Plead. Now, I don't know about you, but at least to my ears, when I hear the word plead, that gives to me the impression of, you know, groveling. That someone, like, gets down on their knees and, you know, just begs. Please, please, I'm going to plead with your mom. Please, mom, stop your whoring. As strange and almost comical as that sounds, that is not what's happening here. It's helpful to look at ways other uh, faithful translations render this Hebrew word that in my Bible is plead. Other translations uh, use the word rebuke your mother or dispute with your mother or accuse your mother or the best translation in my opinion says bring charges against your mother. So the word plead here is a legal word in a legal context. This is similar to the way we might even now strike like a plea bargain in court, you know? Or or you plead your case. Now, even in a courtroom context, 
Pleas can be a, a positive thing. They often are in the scripture. So uh, Proverbs chapter 22, for example, verse 22, we hear, do not rob the poor because he's poor, or do not crush the afflicted at the gate, for the Lord will plead their cause. And what a comfort that would be that the Lord himself is your defense attorney, that he would plead your cause. That is lovely. That's not what's happening in Hosea. In Hosea, the plea is not given in her defense. Look again at verse 2. Plead with your mother, plead, for she's not my wife and I'm not her husband, that she put away her whorings from her face and her adultery from between her breasts. Well, that's graphic testimony, isn't it? The people are now being called in even as witnesses to testify against their mother. That doesn't mean the children of Israel are innocent in themselves. They are guilty, of course, in, in some sense, too. But they're called to testify to accuse Mother Israel of her adultery. Now, what is that? The, the nation of Israel, the, the whorings described here, are obviously not literally the nation sleeping with another nation. This is a symbolic way to depict their idolatry. That is, they were to be wholly devoted to the Lord God. That devotion was to be exclusive in a one-flesh covenant bond with their God, but they had turned to Baals and to other gods as their lovers, is the way it's described here. That, that, they, that Israel keeps that adultery between her breasts. That's intentionally graphic to show how perverse is the intimacy now that's broken. The Lord then brings this long indictment against Israel for breaking this marriage covenant. And the end of this hard section that we've read, the last words in verse 13 are these. Listen again. You went after your other lovers and forgot me, declares the Lord. Whoa. <laughs> Been thinking on that line all week. Went after other lovers and forgot me. Can you imagine a husband having to say these words of his wife? You went after other lovers and forgot me. What would his face look like as he says that? I suppose it could be any number of things, but there is at least some sense of heartbreak. Heartbreak. 
And I think it's fitting to say that sense is similar for the Lord in relation to his bride, Israel. We should not think, listen to me, we should not think that the Lord is unaffected by our sin, even down to his very heart. The Lord God does not have passions in the same way we do, of course. He never flies off the handle. God never sinks into depressions. He does not, you know, rise and fall with the ocean tides of circumstance. But the Lord is also not some sort of statue, some some sort of stoic, detached God who just sits on the throne of heaven and watches. The Lord in the scripture is full of emotion. His emotion is always holy. So we see in God him full of delight or or pleasure. Sometimes we see in him disgust or love or hatred or compassion. Here in Hosea, I think it's fitting to say of the Lord that, that he has some form of holy anger here, even holy jealousy. And it's also fitting to say that the Lord would have holy sadness. We stir by our actions the very heart of God And his beloved went after other lovers. How sad. I felt that needed mentioning. Now, that said, the focus here in Hosea this part at least, is not upon the Lord's emotional response to what has occurred. It's on the Lord's practical response here. So it's not just about how the Lord feels, but about what he's going to do in light of Israel's whoring after other gods. And what he does here, we see the Lord doesn't just watch nor does he sit sobbing in a corner. He takes some drastic action. Verse 3, he says that he'll strip her as bare as the day she was born. Yikes. I know that sounds shocking, and, and it is. What does it mean? What does he mean when he says he'll strip her bare as the day she was born? Look at verse 5, the end of it. She that is Israel, says this. She says, I will go after my lovers who gave me my bread and my water, my wool and my flax and my oil and my drink. So she says, I have all these things. I got all these things. They're mine. They're mine. I earned them. Later in in the chapter, she calls them her wages. 
that her lovers gave to her. In other words, we have some sort of mutual arrangement. I give these lovers my body, and they give me the things I want. I give them my prayers and offerings and sacrifices, and they give me my comforts. This, by the way, is what all sin says. All sin is like this. I will buy my pleasures for a price. That's what sin is. I will chase after this other lover to gain my wages. And Israel here is no different. Israel has found her sugar daddy to give her what she thought she wanted. And now the Lord says in verse 8, he says this. This is his response to such things. She didn't know that it was I who gave her the grain, the wine, the oil, who lavished on her silver and gold, which they used for Baal. In other words, the Lord says, don't you know? Don't you know that all of these things that you bought from the other gods, from the other lovers, by selling your very self, all of that is mine. It's mine. I'm the Lord. I am the one who gave it to you. Every crumb of bread, mine. Every drop of oil, mine. Every wine and vine and fig and flax, all of it mine, and I lavished it on you. And you ran to the bed of your neighbor to earn your drink for the day. And that was mine to give you too. So what now? That's where we are. This is the evidence laid in court. What now? The Lord does not grovel. He does not beg or throw a fit. He simply says this, verse 9, Therefore, I will take back my grain in its time and my wine in its season. I will take away my wool and my flax, which were to cover her nakedness. I'll take it all back. Your wages are ill-gotten gain. And they don't belong to you, no matter how much you think they're yours. The Lord says, I, I'm, I'm going to lay all this to waste like a forest. And what once covered you will now be uncovered. She will be stripped as bare as the day she was born. It will all be gone. We can do this the easy way, or we can do this the hard way. This, this is the hard way. So now we're left to wonder, is this, is this it, you know? 
Is this the end? Are the Lord and Israel just done? Is this the part in court where the divorce is finalized and the papers are signed and you divide up the belongings and you make some sort of custody arrangement? Is this it? You know what happened to that little word of hope? The, the yet. Where's that little hopeful glimmer or ray of light at the end of the tunnel? Is it still there? Yes. It is. That hope is still there. All is not lost in this. Because there is a reason for this hard road. Listen to what the Lord says about the outcome of all of this mess. It's at the end of verse 7. Then she shall say, I will go and return to my first husband. For it was better for me then than now. She'll come back after she has an aha moment. This sounds very familiar to me, this little aha moment. It's very much like the younger brother in the prodigal son parable. Many of you know this account already, uh, that the story of Jesus, there's this younger brother who wants his father's inheritance and takes everything he's got and goes off and squanders it all on the high, high life until every, everything he has is gone. Everything he wanted and got for a while is now gone, and now he has nothing to eat except the pea pods in the pig slop trough. He is stripped bare as the day he was born. And then Jesus says, this is in Luke chapter 15, then Jesus says in the parable, then he came to himself. Then he came to himself, and he thought, I'm going to return. I'm going to go back to my father and say I was wrong and confess my sin and, and ask if he would even consider receiving me again, even as a servant. That's similar to what we see here of Israel. This wife of whoredom will look at the shambles left around her, the pea pods in the trough, and the light will go on, bing, and she'll see, this is, this is not good. This is not what I wanted. These are not the wages that I, I, I went after. And she will see that it was better with her husband, that it was better with her God, and she will return to the one who actually loves her. The hard road is a good way. Sometimes it's the only way. And the hard road here is the path of God's grace by which he brings his beloved home. 
So this courtroom indictment that we see in Hosea, this is not an occasion of the angry God who's pitted against the gentle Jesus who's going to swoop in and make God nicer. This is not an occasion of the Lord shaking a finger at Gomer while Jesus comes in to give her a hug. Okay? God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit are three unique persons. They are three distinct persons who are not identical to one another, and yet these three are one God of one accord in all things. They are are never at odds with one another. So the God that we see here in Hosea is the same God that we see in the New Testament. The same God who will save his people from sin by the blood of Jesus. Saving all who will come to him totally by his grace. We don't add one drop to our salvation. It is all the work of all of God. This God is a husband to us. The church is his bride. So God is not some sugar daddy with which we exchange favors to earn our wages. It is his grace alone which saves us by the blood of Christ. Praise God. The reason I mention this is this. The same grace of God that allures us in love is also the grace of God that accuses us of our lusts. They're both grace from the same God. His grace that that allures us in his love also accuses us of our lusts. Both are part of the same grace to save us, that is to produce both faith and repentance in us. We cannot do without both. And he gives us both here. This will unfold in later weeks, but what are we to do with this now? We're almost done. Let me briefly consider two implications, two spheres in which this might matter very much to us. The first sphere is in our relationship with each other. Okay? We have to be careful not to approach these sorts of things too eagerly or too lightly. God's always holy, and we know that we are not often holy, and even partly so when we are. But there are times, listen, there are times when it is right to confront another's sin, to expose their wrongs. The Lord loves us enough to uncover our sin so that we'll see it for the evil that it is and turn from it to go back to our first husband. It would be neither gracious nor loving to allow us to just gallivant around with lovers who don't actually love us. This is a love of God, but it's not just the Lord who does this. Remember how this courtroom indictment begins? Plead with your mother. That is, speak 
up and call her to account for this. We want to do so with kindness, with boldness, with prayerfulness even. But we must speak up against sin. The goal is that we be restored. There's a place for this personally, from individual to individual, and there's also a place for this corporately in the context of the whole church. Paul, I'll mention this just very briefly, addresses a situation in the Corinthian church in 1 Corinthians chapter 5 where where a man has sexually taken his aunt and continues in unrepentance there. And Paul's response to this situation is this, 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 5, verse 4, when you are assembled in the name of the Lord and my spirit's present with the power of our Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Mm. I pray that such a thing would never be required of us. I hope it never is, but it, it, it might be. Sin is seductive and sneaky, and it sometimes requires very dramatic responses because we we tend to deny our sin and justify our sin and explain away our sin and say it's not that big of a deal. But here it is a big deal, and a big deal response has to happen. But it's not just to kick the person out. The goal you hear at the end is to turn the light on, to see the shambles that it makes so that the person would return and be saved in the day of the Lord. There is a sense in which this must be true between each other. The second and final thing is, how do we look at this in relation to the Lord? There are times when the Lord himself brings indictments against us. And those times are serious and sobering. And as Christians, ones who have faith in Jesus and who by his grace are are children of God, we need to see those indictments as a mark of his love. It's his love that does this to us. So when the Spirit, for example, convicts you of sin in your heart, you know that vaguely unsettled feeling about something that you know was wrong? Don't let yourself become hardened against that feeling or just push it aside. Don't try to, you know, run and hide. Who are you going to run from? He's God. Don't let your fear consume you so that you do these things. Instead, surrender yourself to the good work that the Spirit is doing in you to turn you back. We need to see these things for what they are, which is that they're expressions of God's goodness. 
and therefore as a source of our good too. Would you pray with me? Ah, Lord, Father, would you help us in this time not to regard these things lightly or to grow weary under your good discipline? We know that you discipline the one whom you love. Your love is always wise and always good and always holy to bring your beloved back. Help us to trust you and to follow you. You're a good God, and we do love you and give you praise in Jesus' name. Amen.